This week on The Function Room, Chum's Pedigree. I talked to journalist and author of a book called Chum's, Simon Cooper, about how a small cabal of Oxford friends managed to take over British politics. And from his book, I find out just how crap an Oxford and Eton education could be and you could still make it to the top. Along the way, we learn what happens when a generation of leaders neither has a clue nor gives a toss about mathematics. The curious case of Jacob Rees-Mogg, why Boris Johnson has been an accidental anarchist, and what the French is for chums. I started by asking him, how did he come to write this book? Well, for me, it really started the night of Brexit when I was watching television aghast till dawn. And as I was watching the leading actors of Brexit, Remainers and Leavers traits across the TV screen, I realized, hang on, I know these people, I know where they come from, because all of them except Nigel Farage were at Oxford, either with me or just before me or just after me. So Boris Johnson, David Cameron, uh, Michael Gove, um, just before me, I was a contemporary of Jacob Rees-Mogg and uh, towards the end of my time there, um, just after I left, Dominic Cummings arrived. Dan Hanan, who was the kind of thinker of Brexit, the Karl Marx of Brexit, was a contemporary of mine. So I thought, my gosh, you know, Theresa May was there before me. All these people come from Oxford. There is something there that helps to explain this insane thing that's happening. And do you remember them at the time? Do you remember uh, what they were like? Did they strike you as people that were going to go on to do this thing? Or is obviously there's a hindsight benefit. What do you remember of the time? I mean, as I say, some of them were le- had left before I arrived. So Johnson, but also Keir Starmer, both graduated from Oxford in 1987. Starmer had come there as a graduate student. So um, the one I knew by sight, and everyone at Oxford at the time knew him by sight, was Jacob Rees-Mogg. He arrived the same day as me, October 5th, 1988. And he was the only student who went around, I thought, in a three-piece suit. But when I interviewed him for the book, he said, no, double-breasted. <laughs> and he's been wearing the same suit since. And to wear a double-breasted suit with a tie and often an umbrella was the weirdest possible sight in Oxford in the 80s. It was, I mean, there were people with Mohicans and there was punk, but that, that you know, you, you'd walk past someone with a Mohican, Mohican without a double glance. But Jacob Rees-Mogg, just everyone in the university knew him by sight. And he was in the Oxford Union, which is a debating society, which so many of them passed through. I mean, Johnson was president of it. Michael Gove was president. Uh, Rees-Mogg failed to become president because he was just too weird. And so he would, you know, give these very Thatcherite speeches there. So he was a kind of well-known quantity, but much mocked. And I think, you know, with hindsight, and I wrote for the university paper, and I talked to someone else who was the editor of the university paper at the time, and he said, look, I just thought these people were, were the past. They were the British past. They were toffs from some bygone age. And Britain was striding into a modern future. And there would be no place for people like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And so in the university paper, we make fun of them all the time. I mean, they were kind of very well-known figures because the Oxford Union was much written about. But um, none of us, I think, had expected, except possibly those people themselves, that they would end up running the country. I used to think it was Eton was the thing and that, you know, because all the prime ministers came from Eton. But in terms of a, of a cabal or a group of people at the same time, it surprised me that, that a university was the place where they would build this identity. Because I, I, I don't know, maybe I have this naive view of university of where your mind broadens and 
you meet new people, but it's almost like they all gravitate towards each other. What is it about Oxford that provided a, a petri dish or a home for these people that you thought were uh, relics of a bygone era, as you say? Well, I mean, statistically, Oxford is more important than Eton in British power. So I think there have been five Eton prime ministers since the war, last one, David Cameron. All of them went to Oxford. And 13 of the 17 post-war prime ministers have been to Oxford. Three didn't go to university at all, including Churchill. And the only one who went to any other university was Gordon Brown, who went to Edinburgh, I believe, because the Scottish elite takes a different route, is less interested in Oxford. And so Oxford has this enormous power. And what was it about? I mean, look, as you say, you can go to university to develop your mind, to learn, to grow, to meet new people. And there are many different experiences people were having at Oxford. But if you were an Oxford Tory public schoolboy and you'd been to Eton or another posh school, so, uh, for example, Dan Hanan had been to Marlborough, I think, then you arrive knowing lots of people. So at the time, there'd be more than 100 Etonians who'd come up to Oxford every year. So you had loads of mates and you knew their sisters from the holidays and uh, friends of friends or people you'd played sports against at other schools. And so the British upper class, and I sort of define ancestral upper class as having been to boarding school. That's about 1% of the UK population went to boarding school. They know each other very well and often they know each other over generations. So people like Cameron or George Osborne the families would have had some kind of contact in many cases for hundreds of years. And so when you arrive at Oxford, you don't really bother with the rest of the university because you already have your cast. And so you see that when Cameron goes to Downing Street, he surrounds himself by Etonians. That's kind of his most, the place he feels most at home with, the people he feels most at home with, although those people also typically went through Oxford or, or Cambridge. But if you were a little bit outside the gilded circle growing up, like Michael Gove, who was a scholarship boy at an Aberdeen private school, or Rishi Sunak, who went to Winchester, but came from a kind of professional middle-class environment, Liz Truss, Theresa May, these people not quite to the manner born. At Oxford, if you wanted to join the Tory cast, there were ways in. So Oxford is a kind of place where outsiders can be added to the hereditary elite and mixed in with it. And yet you, you're there watching... Brexit unfold, looking at it through your fingers and thinking, well, I, I know these people, but the there's still a leap for how they took over and how this idea took over. Uh, what did you uncover as you started to join the two eras, the era you're watching unfold on the news and the era of when you went to college? I presume you're, you're aware of it all through your career as a journalist. But in focusing on this group and this time, these people who are apparently not of their time, but somehow it turned out, either made the time turn to them or had found something about Britain they could exploit to create Brexit. Uh, when you joined those two eras, what did you find? Yeah, I mean, the book attempts to join up the 1980s with the 2020s. And I'd say there were three major political elites being formed at Oxford in the 80s. Of course, I had no idea about this as an 18, 20-year-old. But looking back, one was the Labour elite. So people like who became top figures in the Labour Party in our time and the 2010s, the Miliband brothers, Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, Andrew Adonis, they're all there. They're all in this very small Labour club. And Keir Starmer is there for two years, 85 to 87. So they're mixing. They're learning from each other. They're debating Labour ideas. 
you know, sort of from far left to center left. Then you have the kind of what will become the establishment Tory Remainer elite of Cameron and Osborne. They're there. And they're quite chummy with, the, they're quite toffy people. And they're chummy with the toffs who will become the Brexit elite, Johnson, Rees-Mogg, Michael Gove, and Dan Hanan. Cummings is an outsider. He arose a bit later. He is from a public school, a private school, but he's um, he's not really of their world totally. So you have these these rival elites being formed. And the one that wins in the end, as we know, is the Brexit elite. And what is forming them in the 80s? I think one is this very strong expectation that they will inherit power. Mm. They know that when they're 18, 20, because their fathers, their grandfathers run the country, ran the country. And if you went to Eton and Oxford, you're a man, a Tory, you think, well, of course, I'm going to end up in Westminster and I'll have a jolly good shot at being prime minister because that's what, you know, if you're an Etonian, that's quite normal. And so they were looking ahead to running the country. And then what happens in 88, so a couple of weeks before Rees-Mogg and I start university, Margaret Thatcher, who'd always been quite pro-European, she suddenly gives her bruise speech where she turns anti-European and she says, Brussels is creating this new European superstate that's going to exercise this new dominance over us. And that really spooks the Oxford Tory public school boys because they think, hang on, I'm going to run this country. I'm going to Westminster when I grow up. And what I don't want is kind of ridiculous outsiders from Brussels telling us what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. That's a very important part of their belief system. You see it with Johnson. If you went to Eton Oxford, nobody tells you what to do. And certainly not Brussels. Running Westminster is our gig. We don't want people interfering with that. And so they become that part of the elite, passionately Eurosceptic, starting from 88. And they carry that through to the referendum of 2016. Their problem is getting the population on side, which, um, you know, we can discuss how that happens. And Cummings and Farage are essential to that. Uh, do you know why Margaret Thatcher suddenly, who had been pro-European, flipped in that Bruges speech? Was it a response to a sti- an external stimuli from Europe, or a threat? Or was she sensing some mood in the in the heartlands herself that she would she was losing ground maybe to the left or was she worried about neil kinnock or you know why why then and why her no europe wasn't really an issue in british politics but thatcher was she saw europe as a single market project and she with jacques delors who's the french socialist commissioner they create this single market that you and you and i live in today with free trade across borders and free movements of peoples. And she loved that, you know, let's expand the market for the UK. But then she starts to realize, hang on, if you have a single market, you're going to have more regulation of that market from Brussels. So the product standards in Ireland and England and in Italy are all going to be the same. And so you're going to have a lot more decision-making moved from Westminster to Brussels. And she doesn't like that because, of course, she's an English nationalist. Yeah. So her European single market love clashes with her English nationalism. And in 88, she starts to move towards in the nationalist direction. That's what's doing it for her. But she then galvanizes these Oxford Tory public schoolboys who think they're going to run the country. And uh, one other thing I'm thinking of going to run the country, like, 
because I just don't understand the mindset uh, about why you'd like, you know, you're going to run the country and you're going to have a pretty good time doing it. Like it's still going to you're still going to have lots of power. Is it like the empire thing that says I'm just even though I'm going to be prime minister and I might have to cede some power, I don't want to cede anything at all. Like like putting myself in their shoes. Why would they feel so threatened, if you know what I mean, to start a movement, say, as a as a 19 year old? Oxford student who's taking on this philosophy is it is it the sense that you know Britannia rules the waves or why would it matter so much I can see how it matter a bit but that you would start a movement on the basis of it because you know we'd all realized by the 80s that Britannia didn't really rule the waves anymore so they thought look my grandfather my father ran not just the country but an empire and you know, they directed two world wars. Britain was a superpower and we were doing really big stuff. You know, we were governing India. We were killing loads of people all over the place. We were big shots. And already by the 80s, almost all of that is gone. You know, the Falklands War is this late flurry. But they understand it's slightly ridiculous that the Falklands War is the most glorious thing you can achieve in post-war Britain. And so they feel, look, you know, we have become an irrelevance and we're in this boring European economic community and we're arguing about, you know, um, the the milk pond and uh, boring regulations, we should be doing much more glamorous um, cut and thrust around the world. And when Thatcher says, oh, you know, it's going to get even worse because the Europeans are going to take over even more stuff, that really kind of, um, this is the last straw. This is just unacceptable. Let's reclaim. And that's also part of Thatcher's other message. Britain can reclaim its past greatness. It's just a matter of standing up and showing backbone and being firm. And the prime ministers before her had been weak and soft and given in to the Europeans and all these foreigners, but she is going to stand up and say the lady's not for turning. And this kind of thing, this return to the idea of past British glory is very appealing. Uh, picking up on when you said the word boring, uh, that, that's kind of handy for me because it's the area I wanted to move into next. Reading. Uh, reading the book uh, and the, the the ethos and the atmosphere of this group of people around uh, Oxford and particularly the Oxford Union and the debating and it's also uh, getting on to why you're on a maths podcast like the phrase that came to my mind because there's so much emphasis on the the ironic turn of phrase and debate and all that the phrase that came into my mind from succession is you are not serious people and like that for them you know it's it's a game of uh of debate and rhetoric and they issue detail they find you know as you say negotiating the price of milk with you know a load of galician farmers just a boring bit of detail whereas in the good old days you you sallied forth you uh equip uh, a rapier, a rapier wit, and a rapier, uh, uh, you know, sword, you know, was enough to subjugate anybody. It's it's interesting reading that that they were, for them, it's it's all this rhetoric, this classic stuff. Yeah, I mean, the public school education and Oxford very much prioritised rhetoric, being able to speak and write well. So the Oxford education in the art subjects, and most Oxford students in the 80s were doing art subjects. That was the bulk of the university by a large margin. The 
focus of that education is the weekly essay or sometimes bi-weekly. You, you know, you have to write an essay about a subject which obviously you know almost nothing about. You're told to read some books, but you've got, you know, a lot of people around you and um, romantic possibilities and sports and debate. So you don't really read the books. And then you write this essay in the middle of the night about a subject you barely know. Let's say, um, you know, was the uh, was Irish independence inevitable? And so you kind of do a bit of blah, blah about that. You know, you remember some stuff you learned at school and you write it elegantly. And then you have this tutorial, which is where the Oxford teaching supposedly happens, sometimes brilliantly, sometimes not, where the tutor says, oh, well, you know, of course you say that about, you know, 1916, but wouldn't you say that, um, you know, that O'Connell thought rather, et cetera. Sorry, was it O'Connell? Pierce, but that's fine. O'Connell, O'Connell Pierce, Pierce, taught some yes, stuff uh, earlier, but it, in fact, there's a statue of him on O'Connell o- o- Street because... Of course, yeah, that's where that the the, uh, the essay probably yeah. would be like, was, was the British gunboat uh, correct to sail up the Liffey that time? But yeah. I, yeah. Did, did Roger Caseman destroy the cause of Irish independence? Yeah. Sorry. Um, anyway. <laughs> that's all right. That's okay. I, I, I'll leave it in as an illustration of the, 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 spot, the spotty nature of uh, <laughs> knowledge of Irish independence. But this, these would be the confusions also made by an undergraduate writing an essay at two in the morning without having properly read the books. And then you blah, blah your way around that for an hour. So essentially, the, the focus of the education is learning to speak and write well about subjects you know very little about. And so that is what you see in the kind of mature or immature Johnson, Rees-Mogg, et cetera. And also you saw it with Brexit, that Brexit is a huge, technically complex subject. And they hadn't done that at all, but they had some good rhetoric about it. So that's the arts. And the sciences, of course, are rather different because as I understand maths, you actually need to know something. (laughs) And you actually, unless you're totally brilliant, you actually need to do a fair bit of work. So you um, that sort of confounds the ability just to blah, blah your way through with maths. And so maths was always looked down on in the public school system. So even people who you'd think would be counterexamples like Alan Turing or um, Darwin or um, Stephen Hawking, you know, great British scientists and mathematicians, they all said that their schools had actually impeded yeah. them. Turing got Turing's parents got a letter from uh, the school Sherman School saying he can't just think about maths. You know he needs a classical education. Um, Darwin got no encouragement from his school. Um, Stephen Hawking at Oxford, I think he couldn't do a pure maths degree. He couldn't do the degree he wanted. So um, the upper class looked down historically on maths and science subjects, and that kind of contempt was carried through at Oxford where maths and sciences, because it wasn't such a public school thing, was more associated with low middle class people. And so there were phrases like northern chemists yeah. or mathmo, which would often just merely denote somebody who was low middle class or had a, a Lancastrian accent or um, wore the wrong jumpers. I, I find that extraordinary given uh, now, uh, like even you look at Rishi Sunak saying everybody must you know, study maths until 18 you would always assume that maths and science is placed on a pedestal. But uh, reading the book, you almost get this insight into a time when surgeons were like barbers and chemists were dodgy, you know, were considered dodgy because they were close to alchemy and maths, you know, was was ruining the mysteries of philosophy. It, 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 I, I was surprised in reading it. it is that is that what is the attitude now? 
Well, look, that Britain, that upper class Britain historically had that attitude. And that's a very Etonian thing. But of course, there are many different Britons which have produced, you know, great mathematicians and scientists. And Sunak comes obviously from a different tradition. You know, his parents were very successful and ambitious immigrants, Indian origin, but had grown up in East Africa. In fact, as I did, uh, I was born in uh, Kampala. And then when the Asians are expelled at the beginning of the 70s, that's also when my family leaves Uganda to go to Britain. So all these highly educated East African Asians pitch up in Britain. And if you're an immigrant, you don't really care so much about the class system because you think I'm immune to this class system. We have this kind of willpower and energy that immigrants have. And we believe in education because immigrants like education because you can take it with you. And um, so in Sunak's family, math was quite valorized. And later you get this from 86. Another thing that Thatcher did is, is the big bang in the city where you suddenly, anyone can kind of set up a bank and the Americans and the Germans and later the Chinese put their banks in the city. And these are countries that value much more numeracy. And suddenly you need to be numerate to get a good job in the city. And in the end, the city gets taken over by quants. And Sunak, whose great ambition at Oxford is to go into business, go into finance, and he ends up, he joins Goldman Sachs. He enters this American world and he has this Indian background where numeracy is great. You know, it's great if you can count. And one of the problems with English people is they didn't valorize that. And so he has a very, very different outlook. And essentially when he's saying, you know, Britons need to do more maths and need to become better at maths, he's saying this country needs to become more like me. Somehow, somehow despite that ethos and those many Britons and the amazing engineering that comes from all over Britain and from people making their home in Britain, somehow a disdain for detail and science and, you know, the boring detail and the boring northern chemist, somehow that manages to seep into discourse in such a way that British people are convinced to vote for Brexit. Because a lot of the, would it be fair to say that around the mid you know, 2010s, you had this decline of the expert, the, the, tech, the technician. Yeah, but not, not just in Britain. Yeah. I mean, this contempt for experts, the experts have screwed everything up and we got the financial crisis despite the experts. I, I would say, look, that this class of people I'm talking about, the Johnson class, it's a tiny proportion of Britain. Statistically, it's about 1%. And it's the dominant ruling class historically, so they're very important. But their beliefs about, you know, uh, maths is boring, uh, we should be a great nation, um, the old days were good days, are not necessarily shared by the bulk of the population. But these are the beliefs, the prejudices of the people who will go on to run the Brexit movement and will offer to the population Brexit as an option. So the population mostly wasn't saying we're desperate to vote for Brexit. In, Europe, in British elections, Europe barely ever came up. No, it was this part of the Eton and Oxford ruling class that said, lads, do you want Brexit? And we'll tell you why it's a good idea. So the prejudices of this group are not nationally held, but they're very influential. But it is a lesson in how a small group can convince, uh, you know, with one strong, one strong, simple message about Brexit. How do they... How do they get? How do they get from, you know, Thatcher and the Bruges speech and their, uh, you know, their own nostalgia for a Britain that may never come back? How do they manage to 
over the course of uh, a couple of decades make Brexit sellable? Well, well, they they have a problem in that what they want and what the population wants is not really congruent. So their big obsession of the Oxford public school boys is sovereignty because sovereignty is them. You know, the power of Westminster is their personal class power. That's where they go. That's where their class goes. But the population as a whole was never that bothered about sovereignty. You know, people would whinge a bit about Brussels, but it just didn't come up much on the doorstep. Because if you're living in Warrington or Birkenhead, then whether you're ruled by some out-of-touch elite in Westminster or some out-of-touch elite in Brussels, I mean, you don't really care. It's not your problem. Nobody ever asked you to run the country. And so this Oxford Tory message never quite resonated. And then Farage and Cummings say, no, forget the whole sovereignty thing. Let's make it about things that the population does care about, which in 2016 were immigration, which weirdly the Brits have stopped worrying about, and the National Health Service. So they said, if you vote for Brexit, there'll be less immigration and more money for the NHS. And those messages resonated very powerfully, but they were not particularly the things that that Johnson or Rees-Mogg and so on cared about. And in fact, straight after the Brexit referendum, Johnson and other leading leavers say, well, actually, probably, you know, immigration is going to continue much as it always was. And uh, it very quickly becomes clear that more money for the NHS was a lie. Uh, so Johnson's gone now for time for the time being. Uh, some of the you know some of the cabal are still around. Can can this can can in ten or fifteen years time another small group of people pull off another uh, heist like that? Like where now for the chums? I think Johnson has really poisoned their well because. The British public has become much more allergic to an Eton and Oxford public schoolboy kind of spouting guff. And you saw a similar thing after 1964. Alec Douglas Hume, Eton and Oxford, uh, not a man of great brain, uh, but a much better man than Johnson. Uh, He stands in election against Harold Wilson, and Wilson wipes the floor with him. You know, I think Wilson calls him the 13th Earl and mocks his aristocratic background. The idea is Britain is a modern country, shouldn't be run by these throwbacks. And after that, for 40 years, the Tories don't even put a public schoolboy as leader because they think it's over. The public won't vote for Tofts anymore. And I think post-Johnson, we're in a 1964 moment where the British public is very wary of a Johnson-like figure, and the Tories will be slow to put one up. So I don't see that particular thing coming back. And remarkably to me, in opinion polls, you know, about 60% of the population are talking about rejoin, which is, you know, an amazingly strong response. So, um, and, you know, there's a large consensus that Brexit has failed. So I think that particular group is going to be in trouble. The Johnson Tories are going to Public schoolboys are going to be in trouble for a while. Uh, if if that group doesn't uh, doesn't achieve anything for a while, can any other group do the same? Because it struck me in uh, reading the book that uh, like the success of Johnson, you know, he used to be on comedy shows. We liked that kind of bumbling, you know, don donish kind of floppy haired, you know, pseudo aristocratic look, like you know. British people, you know, the bride said revisited type thing. There was always this kind of, if there was a quick turn of wit, you could get away with a lot, a lot without substance. Um, if not 
if not Johnson, can the unserious and the you know detail eschewing group from somewhere else do the same thing, or has 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 the sense that actually no, you need to know detail and you need to have substance? Is that now in situ for a good while? You know, could another could another cabal take over? The sense that you have to know substance is very strong now in Britain. So in polls, people um, praise technocrats. Yeah. You know, there's a huge admiration now for technocrats and experts. And yes, we should have experts running the country. And a very interesting thing, you know, of course, we had populist movements like Brexit all around the world. Happily, not really so much in Ireland. But um, Britain is unusual in that most of the population has recanted. So Tory approval ratings, Brexit approval ratings, Johnson approval ratings have all collapsed. And contrast that with, with the US, where whatever Trump does, his approval ratings stay quite stable. His base just doesn't believe the allegations and they always stick with him. So in Britain, most people have said, you know what, this this was rubbish, it didn't really work. Not everyone, there's still about a third of the population would, would stick with the old message, but it couldn't win anymore. And so, yeah, I think in Britain, we are set for a more technocratic era and you see that both Sunak and Starmer are people who actually read the dossier. And so when Sunak says uh, we all need to, because I'm thinking of the kind of the balance between the classics and maths. And it's funny, in, uh, we, you hear about, uh, you know, when Elon Musk, wouldn't he make a great uh, leader and all this kind of thing? There's, there's a worship of the boom, equation, fix the equation, solve it, move populations with the strength of your scientific, uh, you know, persuasion, mm-hmm. that it, that somehow we're, we, we could go the other way, couldn't we? Like that, that engineers rule the world and then they lose some of the, you know, philosophy yeah. that we need as well. China is a little bit like that, apparently. The, the best way into political power is engineering um, as, as a university degree. I mean, I would like a bit more of, um, I mean, it's astonishing that you have a cabinet when COVID hits, where almost everyone has either done an art subject or politics, philosophy, economics, or law at Oxford. And then this virus arrives and you get issues of exponential growth and, um, you know, uh, infectability rates, infection rates, transmission rates that they'd never really had to think about. That moment where it felt like the emperor's clothes fell off him and Johnson was trying to explain that equation of levels of um, what is the level of threat you should feel. And he, they put up this equation that made no sense. Like the left-hand side had a thing of level of threat. And then on the right-hand side, it was like one plus the square root of nonsense. It, it really, uh, everybody kind of, the scales fell from all the eyes at that point, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there's also this thing where he reads in the FT that only he he deduces from an FT article, good for him that he's reading the FT, that only 0.4% of people unvaccinated who get COVID will die, something like that. And uh, Dominic Cummings has to say to him, no, actually, it's 4%. So, so, yeah, he, he had a huge struggle with numbers. I mean, of course, he was planning to write his Shakespeare biography. Uh, you know, because being prime minister, obviously not a full time job. And he was all, I think, geared up to start on Shakespeare when when the virus hit. And initially he wants to ignore it. But then when he has to focus on it, nothing in the classics degree turned out to be very useful. So, yeah, he, he had a huge struggle with numbers. I mean, of course, he was planning to write his Shakespeare biography. 
uh, you know, because being prime minister obviously not a full time job. And he was all, I think, geared up to start on Shakespeare when when the virus hit. And initially, he wants to ignore it, but then when he has to focus on it, nothing in the classics degree turned out to be very useful. And sorry, I interrupted when you were describing the cabinet. So the cabinet at the start of COVID caught on the hop because perhaps not enough people with a technical background. And now, is it you see it being more technocratic? Well, Sunak has composed a cabinet largely consisting of morons because the party has been taken over by the Brexiteers and um, the far right in the party, people like Suella Braverman, who in any grown-up country would not you know, be allowed out of the house, let alone in cabinet, have this grip on Sunak that they distrust him and they can make his life really hard. So he has to put a lot of them in cabinet. So it's not that these are the um, best and the brightest. Uh, and where now the the chums like in Oxford, let's say they don't, uh, they'll never that point one percent or less will never maybe start a national movement. What do they do? Because they're still there. There's still that hereditary, you know, there's still hereditary wealth, and you know, there's still upper classes. What will they turn their attentions to next? Do you think? Well, it's very interesting that Oxford and Cambridge have cut the legs out from underneath them just in the last five years, because Oxford and Cambridge are really shamed as well, especially Oxford, by the spectacle of Oxford-trained people going out and with their Oxford rhetoric telling the population a load of rubbish and then dragging the UK down this damaging path. So, you know, I've made various visits to Oxford since my book came out a year ago um, to speak about the book there. And speaking to a lot of academics and staff, there's a great shame at having produced, in particular, Johnson. And also, Oxford and Cambridge, like all British institutions, have been roiled in the last five years by these anti-elitist movements. Brexit was in part an anti-elitist movement, albeit led by an elitist public school boys. You had Me Too, you had Black Lives Matter. So we have a time where the kind of elites by birth have felt very under pressure. So what Oxford and Cambridge have done, also under pressure from government, is they've totally reformed admissions where they now take into account your level of disadvantage as you were growing up. So did you have free school meals? Did your parents go to university? Were you a carer at home for a relative? All those things go into Oxford and Cambridge consideration of whether they'll let you in. And so Cambridge now has 73% of its British undergraduates coming in are from state schools, which is the highest in history. Oxford is quite is nearly that. So these universities are totally different places than when Johnson went, when I went in the 80s. Just in the last five years, going to Eton has become a disadvantage, to get back to your question, in terms of getting into Oxford or Cambridge. And so, you know, the number of Etonians coming in is more than halved. And what the public schools are doing now is they're saying, come to Eton and we'll get you into a good American (laughs) university. Yeah. And so we're exporting a lot of these people to the U.S., But a lot of parents are also thinking, you know, obviously, if you're from the David Cameron class and every man in your family went to Eton, you're going to keep doing that because that's just what your family does. But if you're a kind of successful lawyer in London and you're wondering whether to send your child to private school, you now think, hang on, you know, we have a lot of books at home. We have money. We have resources. The kid will probably do very well at a state school. London state schools are very, very good now. And if we send the kid to a private school, it will actually diminish his or her's chances of going into getting into Oxbridge. So the whole private school promise of we're giving you a good shot at Oxbridge in the last five years has been demolished 
So a lot of this kind of hereditary class has been massively weakened, not by what the left dreamed of for decades of abolishing the, the public schools, attaching them out of existence, but just by cutting off their link to Oxford and Cambridge by making it much harder for them to get in. That's hugely reduced the value of, of a private school education. And that really is kind of undercutting that class. Of course, if you come out from Eton, you'll have built up all sorts of networks that will be useful to you through life, but not as useful as five years ago. So the chums uh, in, tr- in trying to preserve a hundreds-year-old system have inadvertently damaged it more than uh, any radicals ever could yeah johnson was the ultimate class subaltern. <laughs> uh i'm I, i'm sure he'll make a, a a long book out of that as well too and probably turn he, he's so he's such a chameleon though or, or is he a chameleon can he recast himself as anti-establishment in five years time and make another comeback well, he already recast himself as anti-establishment, and he's now talking about this kind of via leap that has thwarted him. Um, Johnson's personal ambition is unlimited, and he doesn't believe in anything, which is a big advantage because it means you can always change your stripes very easily. He doesn't believe in Brexit, for example. But I really think it's one time too many because actually most people don't want the country to be run by a liar, whatever their beliefs they don't want somebody. Be, they don't want somebody who's a lazy liar who doesn't read the dossier and doesn't really care in charge. You can be a right wing Brexiteer and still feel that. So, because lying and laziness is chaos, even for for what's left of the establishment. Well, if you seek a monument, look around you, and Britain is in a really poor shape. Average wages are lower than they were in 2007. They're still going to be lower in a couple of years' time. We've had the largest fall in um, living standards in in measured history. The NHS doesn't function. Don't go and have a heart attack in Britain today. It's really quite desperate. And that's not all because of Brexit, but the Toffs did austerity, and then a rival set of Toffs did Brexit, and here we are now. And where are you now? Are you... uh working on anything in a similar area, you uncovering any other uh, cabals <laughs> achieving um, global well, my, movements? Whenever I wrote about Brexit in the past, when there were still people who supported it, they'd write and say, oh, you live in Paris, you're not really British, etc." So I've lived in Paris for 20 years, and I'm now writing a book about Paris. And one part of the book is the French elites, which have many flaws of their own, different flaws than the British elites, but the same kind of self-serving um, separation from the rest of the population. But it's a, it's a broader book about Paris. should be out next year. Oh, what's the French for chums? Copain. And it, it, there's no... Because chums is a very specific kind of friendship, isn't it? Well, copain means... Um, pain is obviously bread. So a copain is somebody you, you break bread with, you eat bread with. Because in France, friendships, this sounds like a cliche, are made over food. So you have dinner with someone. France is a low trust society, so you only trust someone once you've had lunch and then had dinner with them. And so um, Paris restaurants are key places, but the French have their own grand école, these kind of selective schools that you get into at 20, where they all meet each other. So four of the last six presidents, including Macron, went to the ENA, the École Nationale d'Administration, where, um, which is even more concentrated hub of power than Oxford, but is a bit more meritocratic than Oxford. Okay, I look forward to chatting to you about that and shoehorning in some uh, French engineering and mathematics into a discussion for the podcast. Um, Maths and power in France is a very interesting question. Good stuff. Simon Cooper, thanks so much for joining me. Great pleasure. Thank you, Colm. 
that was Simon Cooper there, a person I've been a fan of since his debut Football Against the Enemy came out nearly 30 years ago. His book is called Chums and is available in all bookly locations. That's the function room for another week. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye bye.